Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching in Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. But tonight, I'm from Guadalajara in Malaysia, and it's 12 p.m. here. So I'm glad to see all of you uh, throughout the United States and Europe who listen to the show. So today's guest is Dr. Sheena Yegar, author of Think Bigger, The Innovation Method. Uh, welcome, Sheena. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. I really loved your book, and it's one of those books that I think I'll have to read twice to pick up everything, uh, but I really enjoyed it. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional background? I am a professor at the Columbia Business School, and I've been a professor here since 1998. And I have the kind of job that's more like play than work. Uh, I mainly teach the very course upon which the book was based on, which is I teach students how to think bigger, how to create their best ideas. And I love it. Well, it certainly came across that way. I have to say, uh, well, first, let me ask you, why did you write this book? You mean, did you say when or why? Why? Why did you write this book? Why did I write this book? Oh, well, I had been teaching the course for a while. And uh, the world shut down and the head of the Columbia Business School Press at Columbia University called me up and said, can we get you to write this up as a book? And I thought, I said, yeah, sure. Anyway, the world is shut down. I'm going to be locked up at home. I'm going to have nothing to do. I'll have plenty of time. I'll write this book. It'll take six months. And of course, it took me more like two years. Well, thank God you had the extra time from the pandemic uh, to be able to put that together. So I finally put it together. And actually, there's going to be a workbook coming out soon as well to accompany the book so that people can actually do it as they're reading it. Because it's really meant to be a very, this is not meant to be a passive book or passive stuff. This I really want, I'm giving people a toolkit, which I want them to use. And that's apparent throughout the book. Uh, you and your sister, uh, who I know, and that's how I met you, are both blind and incredibly successful. How did your blindness affect your thinking about problem solving and writing this book? Well, it absolutely uh, influenced my way of thinking about problem solving. Um you know, when I was growing up, I would say the three words, in fact, I, I would still say the three words I hate most are the words, it's not possible. And as you're somebody growing up blind, right, you hear that a lot, right? Because this is not possible. This is not possible. This is not possible. Everybody's worried. Nobody wants you to get hurt. And nobody knows what you can do. Nobody knows what you can't do. They don't even really know what options you might have. And so it's up to you to figure out what options you actually can take advantage of and people just don't realize it and what options you can actually create for yourself. 
And so when I was growing up, I thought that what I really needed to do was focus on choice because I was really, I thought choice was the thing that was most important. And so for the first part of my career, I dedicated myself to studying choice. Um, Why do we want choice? How do we get the most from choice? And so my first book was called The Art of Choosing, which came out in 2010. But as I was giving talks about that book, the kinds of questions people kept asking me made me realize I didn't just think about choice as an exercise in picking and finding. That for me, choosing was an act of creation. That's what I was doing all the time. And that nobody had really been giving people tools for problem solving, particularly not creative problem solving. Sure, they 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 teach you how to solve complex puzzles or mathematical equations, but what about creating meaningful choices to help you do the things you need to do? And um, and so then I began to put together both my knowledge of what we know about how people make uh, engage in judgment and decision making, and combine that with the growing knowledge from neuroscience on how imagination works and how we form thoughts. And then I decided to create an application of that research in the form of a toolkit so that anyone, anywhere could create solutions for whatever problem they had. Is it similar to a decision-making process or problem-solving process that I've been sort of instinctively, maybe intuitively through trial and error been piecing together in my own life? Probably. Did I get better at using it as I began to be analytical about it? Absolutely. And it informs the way I teach and think about it every day. Uh, What was the biggest problem you had to overcome from blindness? And then I want to jump fully into the book. What is the biggest problem I ever had to overcome? You know, I think blindness is having two pieces to it, right? There's one, which is the content of it, the substance of it, which is, which I boil down to the information asymmetry problem, right? Because that there's certain things you have access to that I don't have. Like right now you can see my face, I can't see your face, right? So that's information asymmetry. That's actually much more addressable because it's tactical. I know how to solve for that in any given context, we can figure it out. The second problem with blindness is other people's perceptions, right? They they don't know what to do. They feel awkward. There's this feeling that, oh my God, how would I live if I were blind? So therefore nobody else would be able to handle it. So there's this continuous struggle, shall we say, to, you know, assure people, A, you don't have to feel uncomfortable, and B, you're not as incompetent as they might think you might be. That, at times, can be harder. Um, what's the bit, uh, what is the think bigger methodology at a high level, and how does that work? So. The way I would think about the methodology is we know that every great solution, 
whether it be a solution that's personal to you, that's helped you solve your problem. You know, I don't know how you raise your kids, how you take care of some household problem, how you take care of your relationships, et cetera. Or whether it's a really big innovation like the printing press or the iPhone or getting up into space. We know that for all of these innovations, at their core, they're all new combinations of existing ideas. They're always just new combinations of what already exists. The question is, how do I help you create that new combination in a way that works, that's useful? Because not every combination of whatever is already exists works, right? We all know that. That's why we can't figure out the solution to whatever is perplexing us. And so what I teach people to do is I give people a systematic approach to creating that combination. And so the way that works is I say, okay, well, first, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Define it in as specific terms as you can. Then break down that problem to the three to five most important sub-challenges that you need to solve for in order to solve that problem. And now you ask yourself, who ever in the present or in the past has solved for each of these sub-challenges successfully? I don't want wild ideas, how it might be solved, could have been solved, no. Who has solved for each of these subparts, not the whole problem, subparts successfully? And what did they do? And then you use that, those bits of knowledge. You let them spin around in your imagination and you create. I wondered this as I was reading your book. Early in the book, you're describing the Statue of Liberty. How are you able to do that? And throughout the book, you like describe art and different pieces of art and everything, but you can't see it, right? Yeah. So remember what I said earlier, right? The information asymmetry problem is a lot easier to tackle. In fact, in some ways, I feel like I see in ways that in some ways is more accurate. Perhaps it's less emotional, but it's more accurate than others because for example take a dress or you know any object because i don't see it i don't have an opinion about it i'll just ask five six seven eight nine ten different people it'll annoy the hell out of them if they know and i'll act as if i have never heard the answer before hey what does this look like You'd be amazed at the level of detail you will get if you ask people independently of one another what something looks like. Because different people fill in different details. You also learn the differences between people on how they perceive something. So even something as basic as color, as you know, one person will swear it's black, the other person will swear it's blue. And that debate could rage on. You know, I get to actually see, I don't have an opinion for myself. I actually get to learn all the different shades of color in which something can be perceived. You advocate, which means uh, logically, for people to get other people's input, uh, which you did and just described. Uh, and you call this the third eye. 
And yes. you gave a great example using how Third so eye is something I've been using intuitively since I was 10. Well, and I love the story of uh, Sir Paul McCartney, how he came up with the uh, song yesterday. Can you tell that story and what we can learn from it? Oh, actually, if you go to London and you sign up for the Beatles walking tour, they will literally take you to the very um, townhouse in which he was staying. He was staying with his girlfriend's um, parent dad's house and he was in the back bedroom and he wakes up one morning with this tune humming in his head and he doesn't know what it is. So if you just listen to the folklore, they'll say, oh, he woke up one morning with the tune of yesterday in his head. No, he woke up one morning with the tune and he quickly went to the piano and played it to make sure it really was a tune. And then he didn't know whether it was a real tune, a new tune. He was just replicating something that nobody heard. He had no idea what he had. So he decided to quickly create some nonsensical lines to it. Scrambled eggs, scrambled eggs. Oh, my lady, you have such lovely legs. So those were the original words that he came up with. And then over the course of the next few months, he just, he would hum the tune to different people. And he wouldn't ask them, hey, do you like it? He would just say, have you ever heard this tune before? Because he he was trying to figure out what it reminded people of. He would observe from people's expressions, whether they like, dislike, what were they hearing? What did it sound like to them? And over the course of a few months, he realizes, oh, he's got something that's familiar, but not a replica. He's got something that's actually a tune. And so then he fleshes it out and starts putting words to it. And then at the first time he plays it, he plays it on a, by accident, he has to play it on a guitar uh, that's meant for somebody who's right-handed and he was left-handed. And so he drums it out, strums it out and uh, puts words to it. But that is the first time that he's able to hear it and learn if it's a real song. Then he takes it to the next level where he now presents it to you know, the rest of the Beatles, their producer, et cetera. And they start having those real strategic conversations as to what should this song be? How should it be performed? In fact, it was George Michael who says to Paul, you know, I think you should have a, a string quartet. And he's like, what? No, we're rock and roll. You know, let me just try it. You hear it and then you see what you think. And they all heard it and they loved it. So it was a wonderful example of how, you know, we think of him as waking up with this genius idea, but, you know, there's still a lot of work between what comes out of your head that morning and all the work that goes into before you get to that final masterpiece. You wrote, uh, do others understand your idea the way you want them to? Why is this important? Well, it's very important for a couple of reasons. Um, first, a lot of times we wake up with this brilliant idea and we're convinced as we're speaking that others will, of course, see it the way we see it. But they actually, if you were to actually have them describe whatever you just came up with back to you, you'll discover that they often have a very different understanding of what you just said to them. It happens all the time. It even happens when you're giving somebody seemingly basic instructions. So you have to first make sure that, that 
the way you're interpreting your idea is actually in line with the way the others are interpreting it. In order for it to even be an idea worth discussing, there has to be alignment between that. Then the second thing is, when you have others show you how they're understanding the idea, it's not about feedback as in, do they like or dislike that helps you? It's that as they describe it back to you, you learn how they're going to fill in the missing parts, what stuck out to them. What did their imagination do with your idea? Because you see, you're never going to remember everything I say. And that's a good thing. You're going to automatically fill in things. And by me learning how you filled it in, I learned more possibilities for how to further edit the idea. How many people should how many people should you ask for feedback before deciding it's a good or bad idea? And, and, and is there a scientific number for this? There is no scientific number for this because you are going to, you know, obviously, depending on the complexity of the idea, you're going to have to do more. Um, depending on how well you've thought it through, you're going to have to do more or less, et cetera. So, but a, a rough heuristic would be you want to ask experts because they can show you what something important that you might have missed. You want to ask, um, you know, potentially consumers or users of your idea because you, again, want to see how they're going to interpret it. And you want to ask outsiders. We often fail to ask outsiders, people who have nothing to do with your idea. And the reason why you want to ask them is because you, that tells you how sticky it is, even for people who don't care. I always like to ask uh, multiple people. I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I always like to hear different people's points of view uh, to see if there's something I miss. So I, I found that to be an incredibly useful tool. Um, what's your definition of innovation? Because you write one in the book. Yeah, just building on what you just said, even CEOs of large companies benefit a lot from the third eye. Just um, people aren't going to, you don't really learn anything by asking people, hey, how do you feel about what I just said? Or how do you feel about my idea? If you just ask them one of two things, either, you know, how would you describe this idea? Or if it were you, how would you present it? You learn a heck of a lot more. My definition of innovation is a useful, novel combination of existing ideas that come together to solve for a complex problem. So starts with a problem. Now you're going to find a new combination of stuff that already exists. And it has to be a useful combination. So there's three parts of a my definition that are vital. Don't, don't people use the term innovation kind of loosely? Yes. I mean, I mean, I think there's plenty of things that people think of as an innovation uh, that really isn't. And it's just a, a change to the existing idea yes. that, that's out there, or it's just a, a, a step up from what was happening before. Um, you write about how a great artist like um, Bartholdi, did I pronounce that correctly? 
Bartoldi. Bartoldi, Picasso and Matisse were strategic copiers. Yes. What do you mean and what's the lesson learned? Well, strategic copying is exactly what we're talking about, right? It's learning how things have been done in the past and not throwing that away when you're trying to innovate. You are combining those pieces that have worked. So let's take the example of Lady Liberty. And, and I don't know if you can show pictures here, but I guess most people know what Lady Liberty looks like. Yeah, right? of course. Sure. Everybody um, and, knows. And so she's as giant as the um, uh, colossal statues guarding the ancient Egyptian tombs. So he actually got that idea uh, when he visited um, Egypt. Um, she has the um, the pose of a very famous painting that existed at the time that Frederick Bartholdi was making her uh, called La Verite by Levev was the artist. Um, and so La Verite stands for the, the Lady of Truth, uh, but the pose is very similar. Um, the crown uh, comes from the Roman goddess uh, Libertas, which was on every five franc coin at the time in France and also on the French seal. Um, and the face of Lady Liberty is that of his mother. So uh, it's he combined very familiar elements. Now, obviously, he could have combined them in an awful way, and he probably made many, many, many combinations before he picked the one that he went with. Uh, but he, nevertheless, was combining amongst pieces that he'd already seen a part of his life that had already were working in, you know, in, in different ways. Oh, I was wondering if you wanted to, if you were adding anything on to that. Um, so you asked me, what was your question again? So it's. Uh, 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 so I said, what, 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 what did we learn from that? What's the lesson learned? The way to create your best ideas is to take from the stuff that you've already seen work. That's what strategic copying is. It's not, we often have this misconception in our head that when I'm gonna create something new, I should give myself a blank piece of paper and just start creating to make sure I'm uninfluenced by others. By the way, if you were to just make a drawing from scratch, I guarantee you, whatever you create, you're still gonna be drawing on stuff you already know. If I actually, and if anything, when you draw something from scratch, you're gonna make something that's even more familiar than if I force you to go out and look at stuff that's already ex in existence. And I have you actually look in places that you wouldn't normally look. And then I say, hey, how would you combine these pieces? What pieces would you extract from which place? So you're, you're copying in the sense that you're strategically choosing parts of the different ideas that you're collecting from, but you're not imitating. There is a difference between strategic copying and imitating. 
So I would say T.S. Eliot put it quite succinctly when he said that immature poets imitate, mature poets steal, meaning that you steal the parts of what other people are doing, the underlying principles or strategies, and that's what you incorporate in your work. And that's what I mean by strategic copying. And you hear that all the time in the music industry, though. And sometimes there's even lawsuits over that, right? I mean, because there's only, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, that whole, uh, the recent case of that, uh, there was actually the recent case of the the songs and then also uh, Andy Warhol case. Yes. Supreme Court uh, weighed in on. You know, it's interesting. There's about 60,000 new songs generated or released every is it every day or every month on Spotify? Um, and there's only 12 courts, you know. So, so obviously, we 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 are you know strategically copying from one another, and so there's and we learn you know familiar tunes or themes at work. It's it's all about the combination. Yeah, I mean, even Shakespeare's plays, right, were similar to that, and people have been copying that for as long as uh, people have been doing plays, right? It's always just kind of a somewhat of a, just a slight change to what somebody else has already done. I mean, there's only so many ways you could do it. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you write that uh, artists develop their ideas by solving a series of problems. How does that work? And can we apply it to improving our, our personal and professional competitive position? And also, please tell the story of Nancy Johnson and making the ice cream. I love that story. Oh, sure. I do think that, you know, we think that there's a special time when we engage in creativity, but actually you're engaging in creativity every single day from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed at night. I mean, you're constantly solving problems, big and small, um, probably, hopefully, mainly small, but and so you're doing exactly what I'm saying that you're doing every single day. You're just not thinking about it, right? You're going into the parts of your brain, retrieving what you've done in the past that seemed to work, maybe modifying a little bit, editing it with stuff that had worked in other contexts, couldn't make the combination, the connection, voila, execute. So you're doing that all the time. Um, Nancy Johnson is a is just one example of what we're talking about. And what I like about Nancy Johnson is that it's an example of how just an ordinary person going about their ordinary life essentially uses the method. Um, and we all do it somewhat intuitively, but in her case, we actually can make it more deliberative because we have all the information of how she went about it. Um, so here's the problem she's trying to solve. How do we make ice cream accessible? Um, at the time, Nancy Johnson was in her 50s. This is the early 1800s in Philadelphia. Um, ice cream already existed. She was not the inventor. Uh, George Washington, the first president of the United States, spent $190 on a bucket of ice cream. So it was very, very expensive. It was only meant for the elite. Um, and the reason why it was so expensive back then was because you would take a big bowl You'd fill it with ice, and then you'd take a smaller bowl, fill it with uh, milk, and then you would stir it. And as you keep stirring it, it's getting harder and harder to stir it. It's also melting. 
and it's also forming lumps. And so Nancy Johnson asks the critical question, how do we make the making of ice cream accessible, like so that we can actually make this thing cheaper and more amounts, uh, more higher quantities? And so there were three challenges. One is how do you keep it cold while you're making it? Second, how do you make the stirring process easier and not backbreaking labor? And third, how do you prevent it from forming lumps? It's very simple, three sub problems. Um, how do you keep it cold? Well, she says, well, what if we were to just take a normal water pail that would have been around for 400 years, fill that with ice. You can certainly get a lot more ice cream that way. Now we're gonna take the milk and let's put it in some kind of a vessel that'll keep it cold so it doesn't keep melting. And back then, men would keep their beer cold in the tavern by it being served in pewter. So the vessel is now made of pewter. And then the, um, when to stir it and make it you know, easier to stir, she says, why don't we just take the hand grinder that we use for coffee and for spices? So then we can attach the spatula to that. And then she says, well, how do we prevent it from forming lumps? Well, what if we were to create, what if we were to use spatulas with holes in them? Now we know, we speculate that the way she learned about the spatula with holes in them was from the um, runaway slaves from the sugar plantations. She was an abolitionist. And, uh, you know, in the sugar plantations, they would make molasses where they would uh, stir hot water with sugar really fast and had to prevent the form formation of crystals. And so they would use spatulas with holes in them. And so she just simply said, well, what if you can use it for hot liquid, can we use it for cold liquid? And so in 1843, you had what the Library of Congress dubbed as a disruptive technology. And that was the first ice cream maker. Yeah, I couldn't uh, believe it. And that was considered a disruptive uh, technology. And when you said that George Washington paid almost $200 for that ice cream, is that in today's dollars or was that even an obscene amount back then? No, it's that's what he paid back then. Oh, my God. I, I, I don't know what that would have been today, it but it sounds like yeah. $50,000 or something. It was a real delicacy, you know. And yeah. The Madisons also had it as part of some of their special events at the White House when they were president. Um, you know, I actually, I think it is a disruptive technology. You know what I love about ice cream? It's universal. Everybody eats it, rich or poor, no matter what corner of the world. It crosses all cultures and nobody has managed to make it political. And you're right. When people are down, a bucket of ice cream, a pint of ice cream usually cheers you up, right? It's pleasant. I've never heard anybody said, oh, I hate ice cream. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody say that yet either. Um, did you did you use this concept when developing and writing this book? You know what we just what you just talked about? I tried to when I try to use this concept no matter what I'm doing. Even interacting with your own son and problems that you might have, on, uh, you know, uh -huh. when we're raising kids? 
Yeah. How do we help him get through the senior year of high school so he can actually get into a decent college and have a happy life? Or, you know, how do I manage this dinner party coming up? Sure. Uh, the accepted impression of innovation is one person coming up with an idea, but you talk about the power of teams. Uh, please tell us more about that and with some examples. So I guess the way to think about it is um, if I ask you, you know, who has solved this problem, whatever the problem might be, You'll have a set of examples and you'll know, and you'll also be curious and you'll go and look up certain companies or points in history where they might've solved that problem. But you're biased, right? You have your own, you know, special preferences. So what's helpful about having a team is if you have different people with different backgrounds, all independently asked to look up an answer to the same problem, that's when you'll get real diversity. And that's true no matter what the problem is. You talked about how Bill Gates went from programming for the Altair computer to building Microsoft and his focus on desires triangle, which mm -hmm. is you target and external uh, parties. Why is this triangle significant? So most of the time, so I mean, broadly speaking, it's called the big picture and uh, we create a big picture scoring method in Think Bigger. So, so there are essentially three tools in Think Bigger. One is the choice map, which is what you use for what we've been talking about up until this point. That's what you use for Break, defining your problem, breaking it down, generating all the various options that you're going to use for make your multiple combinations. So now if you were to have, so my method is very systematic. It's not about you waiting to get a random flash of insight in your head. I have you create what we call a five by five choice map. And with a five by five choice map, you can generate up to 3,125 unique solutions. And that's assuming only one person looking at it. So you can get a lot of solutions. Now you're gonna automatically dump out a lot of solutions, but there's gonna be a whole bunch of solutions that are equally, you know, potentially good. And so what we do separately is we have something called the big picture scoring method. And that's what you use for evaluating the various solutions so that you can actually make a more informed choice about which of your ideas are better and worse. Normally what companies do or creative teams do is they just go with their God or vote. I don't want you to do that. I think you can do better than that. And so um, what we do with the big picture is you create your selection criteria. So you ask yourself, well, how would I want people to feel if they were encountering my solution? Not what do I want them to think? How do I want them to feel? So it's all adjectives, emotions. And so it's how do I want people to feel me being the ideator? How do I, how would my customers want to feel? So that's not the, the target. How would my competitors 
feel if my solution existed. And so essentially you, you generate all the various uh, stakeholders that might have an opinion about what you're creating and you create a set of adjectives. And now when you, and usually the adjectives are, you know, five to seven different adjectives. And now what you do is you take your, I don't know, top 10, 15, 20 ideas and you score them. And that way you can see which ones are, you know, essentially your best ideas. Because the ideas that can speak to the most preferences, it's better. In the book, you mention a choice map. What is that and how do leader, leaders use it? And that's the tool you use for creating ideas. So think of a five by five, like a matrix at the top. It's what's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, like how do I make, um, how do I make ice cream making um, accessible? Say that's a problem or how do I make the Tesla or an electric car accessible to people? So that's the problem you're trying to solve. And then let's say along the left column, you now break it down into what are the big challenges? So like I told you earlier, how do I make it? How do I keep it cold? How do I um, make it easier to make it? How do I prevent it from forming lumps? Um, for other companies, it could be how do I reduce the amount of uh, money I'm spending on labor? How do I reduce the amount of time labor is spending to do it? How do I reduce the cost of material? You know, these are all different things that could go into your sub problems. And then across every row, you do what I was describing before, which is you're asking yourself, who has solved these problems? What are different solutions that I can collect from different industries? And they have to be non-redundant techniques. So you collect up for every row, five different options for how this problem has already been solved for, this sub-problem has already been solved for. And so now once you've filled your choice map, and so now you, let's say you have 25 different pieces. Now you just take different sets of five and you line them up in your head and you imagine new combinations. And you keep imagining and you keep imagining, coming up with as many different solutions. So in brainstorming, we're just asking people to just generate whatever comes to your mind, generate as many wild ideas. This one, I'm literally, you know, priming you. I'm telling you, look, take these things, now imagine. Okay, take this other set of things, now imagine. Now take this other set of things, now imagine. It's a... It's a much more strategic way of generating solutions. I was going to say it's a much more disciplined way of doing it. And, yeah, I, and I want, yeah. And I wonder what you think of brainstorming. Like, is that a waste of time because it's typically so unstructured? I mean, I think so, but I'm probably. People would probably say I'm biased, but the research does show now since the 1990s that it's really not a, it generates more conformist ideas, it leads to all kinds of group think. Um, I mean, it's it's speedy, so in that sense, it's good, that's positive. 
If you just need a quick idea that's good enough, it's a good method. But I got the imp- that's the impression I got from your book was that um, in order to innovate and come up with ideas, even if you think you're not a creative person, having a real process and methodology for doing it uh, overcomes this concern of not being quote unquote creative. Do you think so? Yes. And I also think that, look, if it's a real problem, you're not going to sit down with your significant other and brainstorm a solution. You're going to have your most effective conversation, whether you're trying to solve your problem with your relationship, you're trying to solve the problem as to why your company isn't competitive enough, or how you're going to solve the problem of I don't know, fires in Hawaii and make sure it never happens again, at least doesn't create as much destruction. You're going to have to take a more methodical approach. Yeah, I I thought uh, after reading your book, and of course, I think I, I myself and I think many people who are serial entrepreneurs, we develop our own methodology similar to what you talk about. You write about Think Bigger Roadmap. What is it and how does it work? Uh, The roadmap is just the six steps. Um, And those six steps can be captured in the three tools that we've essentially already talked about. The first is the choice map. And the choice map is the tool you use for generating multiple solutions. The second is the big picture. The big picture is the tool you use for um, essentially rank ordering all the various ideas so that you can see more clearly uh, what are your best ideas and what are the trade-offs associated with them. And the third tool is the third eye technique, which is a way for you, once you think you've got an idea that might be a candidate, to actually see how will others interpret it, how to flesh it out so that people will interpret it the way you're intending for them. And and that in itself is also still part of the ideation process. And I consider the third eye as an important step right before uh, what we think of as prototyping. I think we should not be so quick to prototype. We should first do the third eye test. When telling some of your ideas, how should that minute, 30 seconds or longer what should and shouldn't you say? And I, and I deal a lot with that when I'm working with entrepreneurs who are going to be uh, meeting investors and making sure that the story and the pitch they make is concise. Elevator pitch, you know, when you're just going up in the elevator, you're being someone. Yeah, so I have people do all different versions, but obviously the way you know that you've really got your idea pinned down is when you can do it in one line or less, right? Yeah. But uh, you know, you have to start by giving people ten to fifteen minutes, um, and that's when they're talking to potential experts or at least people that are willing to listen. The elevator pitch—you got to be able to do it in, you know, essentially less than three minutes. Um, but ultimately you want to get to the point where you can describe it you know in a sentence or so i say if if i explain it to my mom and she can't tell her mahjong group what i'm doing 
then I haven't done a very good job of explaining it to her. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great rule of thumb. Uh, how important is it for an entrepreneur to have high emotional intelligence? Well, I think the third eye is essentially that. You know, people are always saying develop your emotional intelligence, and that's a great thing, and we all want to do it, but we don't, we're not particularly good at telling people how to do it. The third eye by see, when you're doing the third eye test. I'm not asking you to learn to suddenly develop a thick skin. I'm not asking you to go out and ask people, hey, what do you think? And then the people who say they love it, you're on cloud nine and incapable of seeing how to edit. And the people who hate it, you're like, oh, my God, they didn't even listen to me. They don't know what they're talking about. You're going to do that. Or you're going to be like, oh, I better throw this entirely, this whole idea away. I'm a failure. Right. And you have no idea what the person actually understood anyway, because you have no idea if your intention got received. They just gave you their emotion in response to whatever they were thinking you were saying. So I'm essentially giving you an operationalization for how to have emotional intelligence. I'm not, I'm telling you, just describe your idea to somebody, do it with gusto, passion. And then later just say, hey, how would you describe this idea? And just listen. Don't critique them back. Don't say you didn't listen to me. Just listen. And see what you learn from listening. You always learn the most from listening. And so few people do. And, you know, it's funny. uh, I had an entrepreneur one time come to me uh, with an idea. And I asked him about, you know, did you actually talk to other people And I think he talked to friends who just wanted to encourage him, um, but he had this idea uh, of uh, playing back uh, things that you heard on the radio, uh, like you do with television. And I go, well, why would anybody want to do that? You know, you're listening uh, to a uh, radio news station and you miss the news, but they're always repeating it or it's already uploaded in the cloud. And yet he spent $75,000 on developing this idea that essentially got nowhere uh, to it. And I I, I kept wondering, he had uh, been a successful business writer. And you think he'd seen enough of those kind of things. But you see people do that all the time of spending a lot of money developing a new uh, invention or a product idea without actually... Uh, testing the market before they actually do it and thinking that they've created something that everybody would want to have. Yeah, I think just the exercise of verbalizing it, we're often afraid to do it. That teaches you a lot about how to build your idea even before you prototype. You really shouldn't go out and pretest so quickly. Most ideas are not worth even pretesting. In fact, most of our ideas suck. Uh, (laughs) most ideas suck and that's okay that's why we're able to create so many of them yeah and that's why even the greatest success uh successful entrepreneurs had lots of losers uh or ideas that they thought were going to be great i've interviewed lots of entrepreneurs who told me that the idea they thought had the least chance of success 
was the one was the biggest hit, the one they thought was going to be great. Uh, even Mark Zuckerberg thought the Facebook of four ideas he had was the worst of the four ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's the and that's the one that was the hit for him. Uh, you write that when we address our emotions and become aware of them, we're more likely to choose a solution that makes us confident and empowered. Is that because when you believe in something, you're willing to fight harder for it? Why is that? So let's step back a little bit. What I ask people to do and think bigger is before you generate, you start generating solutions. I ask you to do that desires triangle exercise you referred to. I ask you to figure out what do you want to feel? How do you want the solution to feel? How do you want your customers to feel about the solution if it were to exist? How do you want external entities, whoever those might be, to feel? Um, And the reason why it's important to surface emotions before you start generating solutions is because they're gonna influence your judgment. So you gotta you gotta surface them ahead of time and act as if they don't and stop acting as if they don't exist. So you surface them ahead of time so that they now get put into your your big picture. And that will serve later as your criteria for choosing. See if you separate if you if you Stop pretending like emotions never affect your analysis. Instead, acknowledge it, surface it, indicate, hey, you know, look, whatever solution I come up with, whatever product I come up with, it has to be perceived as sexy and people have to perceive me, the ideator, as really cool. If you're not willing to say that up front and be honest about that, you're going to do yourself a disservice, right? And so surface those, then you generate solutions because you will generate equally good solutions. But you're not going to be as in love with all of them. You're not going to be as likely to be motivated to pursue all of them. The ones that will ultimately be the ones you're most passionate about pursuing are the ones that will be in line with your emotional criteria. And that's why The emotions are really important to creative problem solving. They're not important for the information gathering. That's where they can hurt you. But they're extremely important when it comes down to choosing. There's a list of wants, which helps you define and create whatever whatever new thing you're working on. Does that fit every type of business or only select ones? Well, I don't know what business wouldn't have a want. I mean, why are you in business then? Well, I guess, you know, I'm thinking uh, about um, some businesses are just, you know, mundane businesses like a dry cleaner or whatever. What What is the, uh, and when I was thinking of reading in, in so your book a dry about- cleaner would have wants, right? So let's think about the big picture for a dry cleaner, right? They want it from the perspective of the dry cleaner owner. They want it to it to be perceived as really good quality, um, good service, maybe friendly, maybe, um, I don't know, 
cheap or high-end, depending on what they want. How would the customer want to see it? They would want to see it as really good quality. Um, they uh, are honest. They actually tell me when they get the stains out. Okay, now maybe conveniently located. Maybe they deliver it to me on time. Okay, who are your other stakeholders? Well, you know, do they pass the government regulations to whatever to whatever extent those exist? Um, you, you see where I'm going here. So sure, they, there's wants. So almost every business has some kind of wants. Yeah, of course, some business. I mean, obviously, there are businesses that are more complex. So the wants are more numerous and more interdependent and more complex. And some businesses are more simple, like the coffee shop is simpler, but sure, every every business has wants, every not-for-profit, every every family, uh, you know. When, when you're going for, uh, to gain insights on whatever your new idea is, are there, is there a profile of the type of people who are most insightful and provide the biggest uh the best feedback is there some type of person that you look for that can do that and some people that you say don't bother uh, because they're kind of it's a kind of a waste of time to talk to them well we do have this tendency to either only ask experts and you know, it's it's useful in the beginning to ask experts because they can tell you what's already been done. But remember, if they knew the solution, they would have done it. Um, and so you don't want to ever limit yourself to just the experts. Or we tend to ask just the customers. And remember, customers can tell you what's going wrong, but they don't actually know enough or care enough to tell you how to fix it or what they need, really. Like if Henry Ford had asked his customers what they what they needed, they probably would have said they needed a faster horse and buggy. Um, and so it's important to get a diversity of inputs because they serve different functions. Um, and it's also important to get people that are curious because they will give you more insights that will come from other spheres. So here, here's how I think about innovation. We, we all want to come up with ideas that are out of the box. But how do you get an out of the box idea? It's not going to happen like magic that will just somehow through divine intervention spring out of your from your head into your mouth. It's actually going to happen because you are a curious person and have gone into literally other boxes to learn about other things and then can now pull those other things from those other boxes and bring it into your own box. That's what's happening. You're importing or strategic copying and the people that are best set up to do that are the ones who are curious. In the book, you had readers take uh, tests showing whether they were creative right or right brain or analytical left brain. Could knowing this preclude some people from thinking creatively because they don't think they have the creative gene? So let's be clear here. There is no evidence to a right brain, left brain ethos. That is a myth. Um, I put it in a book as an example of one of these you know, myths that are out there that 
make people think that there's a creative type versus an analytic type. There's no such thing. Um, even though there are still thousands of tests out there in the world so that you can go find out if you're a right brain, left brain. When you look at the science and you look at people, whether they're physicists, mathematicians, musicians, artists, and you look at them as they're under an MRI machine doing their tasks, all portions of the brain are lighting up. In fact, very similar processes are at play when you're doing a so-called creative or an analytical task. You tell the amazing story of the new ventilator being developed during a shortage during the pandemic. It's an amazing story. Can you please tell it and what we learned from it? Uh, and, you know, it's a good picture in your book. And I slightly remember it when it was happening. Oh, yeah, it still exists. Um, it's mainly now used in Africa because it's a nice briefcase size ventilator that doesn't collect dust. It's actually quite useful. Uh, remember in the beginning of the pandemic, when the world shut down, um, we thought that we needed a lot more ventilators and we didn't have any. Um, and so a team at NASA got together and they thought, well, how can we help? And they didn't have any more information than you or I. They were reading the news every day and just asking themselves, well, can we help with the mask crisis? Can we help with the fact that people keep touching their face? Can we help with, you know, all the list of things that would come out every day? And finally, they looked at the list and they said, okay, well, what might we know something about that we might be able to take our knowledge and transfer it to this other domain? And so they thought they would focus on the breathing problem since they anyway worry about breathing in space. And so they they knew about how breathing worked in space, but they then had a team of people who met with people in the medical world and began to understand, well, what do you need in a ventilator, particularly for COVID? And then what parts need to be there? What are necessary? Oh, well, okay, so do we have vendors of our own that could provide these parts um, that wouldn't disrupt the already disrupted supply chain? Um, and so in 37 days, they built a briefcase size ventilator that anybody could use anywhere around the world. Uh, because back then, the problem was the ventilators were really big. Uh, they were hard to use for anybody other than doctors and very well-trained nurses. Um, so they made it easy to use. They put pictorial instructions so that it could actually be transported to remote parts of Africa. Um, and yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a wonderful, a wonderful story of people who just got together and really did this to help the world. Yeah. I mean, when you see the size of that compared to the normal ones, and you said there were 2000 different mm -hmm. parts and totally uh, simplified the, it. it's really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a real, that's a real uh, significant change. They tested it here in Mount Sinai in New York City because remember, New York City yes. was the first red eye of the you know the eye of the storm, so to speak. So uh, here's my last question to you, and I'm sure you're asked this all the time: What role is AI playing now, and will play in innovation? It's going to serve as an aid. I mean, ChatGPT can be an aid in innovation. You can ask it to do those combinations, and then. 
uh, you can then look at the combinations it generated and see which one's better and worse. So our ability to create more combinations is only going up, which means that human judgment and the value of human judgment is also going up. Are you using it yourself? I have been actually, even my students use ChatGBT. It, it, it doesn't yet really make them better, but I think that's a function of humans are still learning how to make ChatGBT do its best work for them, and ChatGBT is still in its nascent phase. I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I loved your book. I, um, thank you. Ex I expect people who really want to um, have a disciplined approach to innovation and, and be smarter about it are going to uh, get your book. And uh, I look forward to when you do your next book after this. Uh, but hopefully you're not going to wait 10 years in between books. <laughs> Thank you so much. Everyone, have a wonderful weekend and look forward to seeing you all uh, next Friday. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.